in David's life, there were a number of things that we heard this morning. I want to highlight three of them, this, this idea of his calling, what he was doing before he was anointed to be king. This first anointing that takes place, if you're familiar with the life of David, he gets anointed again. Um, and we're not going to go into all, all of the, what that means, but rather just this first anointing that happens. We're going to look at this rejection by his brothers that David faces. And then we're going to get into this story, this, this story of a challenge and a contest that this giant comes and brings against the armies of God. And then the, the, the actual battle itself um, and how David is the champion and what that means for us as the people of God. So last week we saw how Saul was an anti-type of Christ. We saw how Saul was not a righteous king, but rather an unrighteous king, and he feared the people. And this fear that, that Saul had of fearing the people or respecting their opinion rather than respecting the opinion of God is re-highlighted in this account. And the difference between Saul and David is who they trust in. So Saul had a filial of oil, which is a small unit of measure. It's We don't use filials. We use gallons. And some of us are cool and we're metric and we use liters. But, uh, you know, we, we use gallons and cups and pints and quarts. Um, and filials, is, you know, it's I don't remember the exact ratio between a filial and uh, a, a full horn of oil. But Saul was anointed in a very small way. And David had a full horn of oil. At the beginning of this passage, we saw how Samuel was told to take his horn and and fill it full of oil. So he's carrying this oil and David's anointed. And so Saul becomes for us in this passage, a picture of the old covenant, how it had a little bit of power. It had a little bit of effectiveness in terms of Israel coming into what it was called to be, the people of God being the people of God that they were called to be. And whereas David here is uh, a representation of the new covenant, the, the kingdom that David establishes and that his son Solomon moves forward with, was the, it was the greatest extent of Israel's taking hold of the land that they were called to. Under no other kings other than David and Solomon was Israel even close to controlling all of the land that had been promised to them by Yahweh. And so David represents the fullness and the extent of the New Testament in, in that God's desire for the effectiveness of the gospel to spread throughout not only the whole world, but also all of the things that he wants the church and the people of God to be. So David's reign for us in this passage becomes a foreshadowing of Christ and how Christ will reign and does reign even now throughout all the earth. We sang that song this morning uh, called the Anthem, and in that song it has a it has a line in it where we say he is seated in majesty. Um, there's this idea in evangelical Christianity that Jesus is waiting to reign until the second coming of Christ. And that is biblically indefensible. In fact, most people who were would say, uh, you know, looking at the scriptures, saying that Jesus is waiting to reign, don't understand the concept that the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit happened when Jesus sat down. In fact, I was reminded while I was putting this together of a passage that John Gray had um, uh, had read, uh, one of those spontaneous Lord-directed passage readings, um, and and 
you know, when he had disarmed the rulers and powers, he sat down. The idea that Jesus is in his session or his intercession, he is seated in heaven and at the right hand of God, which was what we had uh, said in the creed this morning. And so subtly, we even some of us, we probably believe that Jesus is waiting to reign until his second coming, but it's actually the case. Biblically, uh, what the church has believed for a very, very long time, Christ is reigning. The Psalms say that he will rule even in the midst of his enemies. And so David's reign, David's full extent and control of the land is a foreshadowing forward to what Jesus does in reigning in all of the earth, not just the church. So in David's life, we see a number of things. First uh, Samuel sixteen seven, Samuel is is thinking that this is Eliab. Eliab is going to be the guy who replaces Saul, and he did so because Eliab was really handsome or or whatever. We don't know exactly, but. God says to him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you remember to last week when we read in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul was told that he was rejected, Samuel said, the Lord is seeking one who has a heart that is after the things that the Lord desires. And so David, in this context, shows up as this, this man who inwardly in his heart he respects the lord and doesn't fear the people he doesn't respect the power of the office but rather respects the god of that office in acts 13:22 peter is giving a defense of of what happened and why the the baptism of the holy spirit is about to come to the gentiles and he says that he he lays it out in the context of the lord uh, working out the old covenant, he says, after he had removed him, that is Saul, after after Yahweh had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. And so f- for this element of the life of David, we see that he's becoming a very concrete type of Christ, that Christ was one who came and uh, in John 17, he said, all that you have given me to do, I have done. And this is, this is a picture of, of David fulfilling the righteousness of the calling on his life. But this calling in this chapter is, is mentioned a number of times, and each time David's name is mentioned or, or he's introduced in this series uh, or in this, in this uh, passage, it's done so with relation to the fact that he's a shepherd. And I find that to be extremely beautiful. It says in, in 1 Samuel 16, 11a, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? That is, Samuel had gone through all of Jesse's sons and hasn't found the king yet. And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Not only in uh, verse 11, but also in 19, So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the flock. I mean, he wouldn't have, Jesse didn't have two sons named David, but for some reason, God, in the way that this passage was written, had Saul mention the fact that the son David is, is with the flock. He's tending the sheep. And so David for us becomes a picture of the shepherd and not only a shepherd, but a shepherd who's going to be a king. 
In 1 Samuel 16, 13, David is anointed. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The verse right after this, after the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily on David, the Spirit of the Lord in, in verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so this transition takes place. Even though Saul is still reigning as king, and even though David is anointed as king, David is not reigning completely yet. But in this anointing, uh, David was anointed, and it says, in the midst of his brothers. It was made apparent to Jesse and all of his brothers that this guy, David, the youngest, the least likely to be uh, recognized for his human or outward appearance or the outward ability for him to reign, he has been chosen by Yahweh, and he's going to be the king. Right after this anointing takes place, Samuel kind of fades into the background of this book. He's still there, and he's going to show up a few more times. But mostly, this is now going to be about David and Saul. And uh, in verse 13, I think it's important we see that he that the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily from that day forward. Of course, we, we can see how this is easily a type of Christ. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. In the midst of this assembly, those who have been called out, from Israel into the wilderness. And so there's this picture of the church in the midst of Jesus' baptism. He's anointed with the oil of joy above his companions, as Hebrews 1 and, and Psalm 45 mentions. And then again, John, the one who is like Samuel in, in Jesus' story, he fades into the background for the rest of the Gospels. And he'll have one or two uh, reappearances. But this is extremely similar. And the, and the the similarities are, are hard to not notice. In Acts 10, we, verses 36 through 38, we read, the, world, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. And this is the important part here is verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is demonstrating that after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he was doing the works of God. So not only in his calling as a shepherd, but also in his being anointed as king in the midst of his brothers, uh, but also in the rejection that David faces, he points forward to the rejection that Christ would experience. In 1 Samuel 17, 17, we see how David was told by Jesse to go. It says, Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of your brothers. Now, if you remember from last week, Saul declared a fast in the midst of a battle. Yet David is bringing food to his brothers to strengthen their hands. And David, again, is being, he, the, the writer of 1 Samuel, he is intentionally contrasting Saul versus David. The unrighteousness that would cause you to starve in a spiritual battle, David is, is saying, no, rather, I'm going to bring this bread 
to my brothers. While they're warring against Goliath and they're unable to conquer him, I'm going to come and bring them food and commune with them and eat with them. Unfortunately, his brothers do not receive him. In verse, uh, just a little later, it says, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? Eliab was uh, very, very angry that he wasn't chosen. And so David comes and he brings this food, and David just simply asks a question, and and Eliab responds to David's involvement here on the front line and says, why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He wasn't only accusing David of, of wrongdoing and coming, but also was, was accusing him, him of neglecting his responsibilities. He, he continues and he says, I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come or come down in order to see the battle. He's basically accusing David of saying of wanting to come and see people murdered and and not do anything about it. He's come to just be a spectator and not get involved. Even though this insult is terrible, David doesn't respond in harshness. In this we see an amazing foreshadowing of Christ. In John 17, 38. It says that Christ was sent into the world by the Father. In John 1, 11, it says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But later, a few verses, it says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. This idea that grace is poured forth on uh, the lips of Christ, that is, the words of Christ in the midst of all his involvement and, and interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, specifically highlighted in the book of John, chapter 5, maybe, uh, where in the midst of their accusation, he says, and while they're trying to kill him, he says to them, uh, anyone who is thirsty can come and drink and I'll be living water for them. And so, even in the midst of this rejection that David experiences, he points forward to Jesus. So having established that David is a type of Christ, we can see how this battle is really not to be applied to our hearts. It's not not really to be us trying to be like David, but rather recognizing that David is just pointing forward to Jesus. And uh, I, I just, my heart is burdened because I've just never... Only one or two times have I heard this passage done right. And I'm sure if you've been in church for any length of time, you've just heard this maybe on Father's Day, maybe maybe some other time. Just, you know, you've heard that you should be more like David and be less like Saul. But rather, you, you, the the at the time you were failed to, to be exhorted to uh, see how Christ was like David. And, and rather, David was just a foreshadowing to point to Jesus and that, uh, my opinion and, and heart this morning is if you don't see that Jesus uh, did this for you, that Jesus slayed Goliath, you're not not going to slay Goliath. So let's cover, let's just in summary review what's happening. Uh, there's this challenge. Goliath is coming out day by day for 40 days, and he's taunting the armies of God. And Goliath in this manner is sort of a mediator. He's coming and it says he's coming into the valley in between uh, the armies of the Philistines and the armies of the living God. In 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 10, it says, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come up? 
Uh, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. In verse 9, he says, Goliath uh, doesn't establish the spiritual transaction that takes place here, but he's just rather recognizing. He says, but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become servants and serve us. But before that, he mentions, if he is able to defeat me, we will become your servants. So this challenge is put forth, and David hears this challenge, and he accepts it. In this manner, David becomes a federal head, or what might be referred to as a representative of the armies of God. David's victory is going to become the people of God's victory. But on the other hand, if he loses, they lose too. And I don't want us to lose lose sight of that. If David loses this battle, the people of Israel, the armies of Israel, they're going to serve Goliath, and they're going to be subjected to the Philistine uh, dominion. Goliath represents the accuser. His name is actually uh, a name that has the connotation of a soothsayer, someone who is is trying to mesmerize uh, someone, maybe put them under a spell or put on a curse. And Goliath here is representative of of Satan or the evil one. In 1 Samuel 17, 11, we see this fear that Saul had of the people earlier in chapter 13. It's re-highlighted and it shows up now as fear of evil. When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so the battle here is not just about a military battle. It's a battle of heart. And David doesn't lose that battle. Saul's armor and weaponry that he is told to use, it speaks of the means and the manner of the, of the old covenant, and, or rather just man's soulish attempt to fulfill righteousness on his own. But David, trusting in the Lord, completely refuses to go out against Saul with, with all of this weight on him. In 1 Samuel 17, 44, it says, The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Goliath was in this way trying to cause David to fear. I mean, David sees how big Goliath is. And this is, I mean, that'd be like someone coming up to you and saying, uh, you know, come out, we're going to fight, and I'm going to rip out your stomach and uh, give it, I'm going to put it in a blender I mean, this is a terrible thing. He's, he's telling David, like, I'm going to take your eyes and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed them to birds. And, you know, this is, this is terrible. Like, David is, is, is here standing in front of a man who is much taller, uh, seemingly, much stronger, seemingly. And Goliath is caught, trying to cause David to fear this encounter, this battle. David does not fear but rather prophesies of his own victory. In 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of 
army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by the sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I want you to notice that. He's saying that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that the assembly would know something. It's not just about the earth hearing the gospel, but also the assembly, those who are already of the people of the Lord, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. Now, a sling and a stone don't seem to uh, mean much to us. They seem really weak against a giant. But this stone itself is also prophesying of Christ. In Isaiah twenty-eight seventeen, it says, Thus, uh, therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. In this contest, David strikes a fatal blow to Goliath with that stone, but he also totally destroys David by the removal of his head. It's it's important to see that David didn't have a sword in his hand. That's why it mentions, you know, but David David didn't have a sword. He he trusted in the Lord and the deliverance that the Lord chose that day for him to slay Goliath with that stone. But David runs up to Goliath and cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. This is pointing forward to the beauty and the the wonder of by dying that Christ has defeated death with its own medicine, so to speak. We've highlighted this verse uh, time and again the last few weeks, but I think it really is important for us to lay hold of. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. See, that that's Goliath's part of the story. He's making decrees against the people of Israel. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to, cr- to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, this victory that David achieves not only is a victory for himself, he doesn't just slay Goliath, but this victory becomes a victory for the people of Israel. In 1 Samuel seventeen fifty-two, it says, The men of Israel... And Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay among the way to Sherem, even to Gath and Ekron. This idea that they are storming gates should be no surprise to the gospel reader, where Jesus says that I will build my church, I will build my assembly, my called out people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Also in Acts 1.1, it says the description that that uh, Luke gives of the book is a, descri- a, a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his apostles. And so this victory that Jesus brings for the people of God doesn't just stay. Jesus didn't just raise from the dead on his, on his own for his own righteousness, but rather 
the work that he did in conquering Satan has now become the victory for us. It's my opinion that um, Goliath represents not only the, the sin and sickness of, of the world, it doesn't just, Goliath doesn't just represent Satan, but Goliath also represents the major sin and struggles in our lives that we still battle with. And rather than tell you to be like David this morning, I... I would tell you to look on the one who is the greater David, that you would see how Jesus has conquered Goliath, uh, so to speak. You're never going to be able to put to death the giant sins in your life until you recognize and really by faith put your trust on that one. Like Isaiah said, he who trusts in that cornerstone will not be disturbed or dismayed. By faith, those who put their trust in gospel or in Christ responding to his gospel, uh, that victory that Christ has achieved for, for his people becomes the victory for that person. And rather than Goliath offering to, uh, desiring to offer up David's body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, Christ offers up his own body on his own to his own people. And with that, we'll take communion. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that we would see the beauty. God, we ask you that we would completely remove lesser forms of joy and distraction that plague us from reading your word. We ask you that we would spend time in your word, that your Holy Spirit would come to us and meet us while we're reading and teach us throughout our days that he would throughout the day describe and, and, and unfold and make connections that we haven't seen, that our eyes would be full of light as we stare at your son in the old Testament. God, we ask that those among us who are not trusting in the greater David would come to a place where they can put their trust in him. God, we ask you that you would slay the giant sins in our life, that as we look towards the victorious one, Jesus, that we would have his victory become effective and it would become our victory. In Jesus' name, amen.